Thanks for tuning in to the Calvary Now podcast. At Calvary, our mission is to set people's hope in God and engage in the mission of God. Today, we're back in our study in the book of Mark, where we see how Jesus' teachings turned the perception of the kingdom of God upside down. All right, Calvary, I want you to think about something with me for uh, just a minute as we get started this morning. So I want you to think about, if I could get you 10 minutes alone with Jesus, all right, if I could get you 10 minutes alone with Jesus, say you're walking along the road with him in the ancient Near East, right? You're maybe heading to Jerusalem like we see him doing. Uh, Today, you've got his undivided attention in these 10 minutes. He's not teaching anyone anything in that moment. He's not healing anyone in that moment. Nobody's coming up to interrupt you and he, you and him. He's not in a battle of wits with the religious leaders or anything like that. It's just you and Jesus and you have his undivided attention. If I could get you those 10 minutes and during those 10 minutes, you could ask Jesus anything. Okay, during those 10 minutes, you can ask Jesus absolutely anything. You could bring him any question. Right? You could bring him any curiosity that you have. You could request from him anything you wanted in those 10 minutes. If you had 10 minutes alone with Jesus, what would you say? What would you ask him? What would your question be to him? Or what might you request of him in that time? I want you thinking about that right now. I don't know about you, but as I thought about that for myself, my very first thought and probably my best thought was like, well, I do have a question I would love to know the answer to. It's what philosophers call the problem of evil. And uh, the problem of evil essentially goes like this. If God is all loving, that means that he wants what's best for us, right? If God is all loving, he wants what's best for us. If God is all powerful, then he can do what's best for us. And both of those things we would say yes to, right? God, he is all loving. Yes, he wants what's best. He's all powerful. He can do what's best. And this gets to the problem of evil. Then if God is all loving and if God is all powerful, how does NC State keep losing (laughs) to in-state rivals? How is that happening? God, I would love to ask Jesus that question, right? Why, why do you let bad things happen to good schools and good things happen to bad schools, right? That's the problem of evil, at least in my mind, how I think about it. It's just rolling around in my head all the time. I really would love to know the answer to the the problem of evil. I know one day I will. God will explain that face to face when I see him. That's my first thought. I'd ask him that question. But then I also think like, well, man, if I only have 10 minutes, if I only have 10 minutes with Jesus, and I know that like one day later on when I see God face to face, I'll get that answer anyways, maybe I could use my 10 minutes a little bit more strategically, right? This is the creator of the universe after all. He can do anything. He can make anything. He can get me anything. And so maybe I should use my time there a little bit, a little bit more efficiently than just to answer a lingering theological question. And, and this is at least for me as like a base human being where my thoughts quickly go to like Jesus as cosmic Santa Claus, right? If I've got 10 minutes of Jesus' undivided attention, and I can ask him for anything I want, you know, I start making a list. And maybe you have an Amazon wish list or something like that. It's that without the budget. And I'm not saying I'm proud of that, you know, that that's where my mind goes, but I was, I was thinking like this this week. And I'm saying I'm proud of it, but like, if you've only got 10 minutes, you know, you kind of have to maximize that time. 
I was thinking about it, man, it's like I've seen a few different Mr. Beast videos where he gives somebody like a stack of cash and then a clock. You know, it's like you've got $10,000 and you've got two minutes and whatever you can fit in the cart, it's yours at the end of those two minutes. And it would be like that with Jesus. All power, all authority, all position is his. He can do anything, but with no budget, with no time limit, right? He can do anything. So what about you? If you had 10 minutes with Jesus... 10 minutes face-to-face, 10 minutes of his undivided attention. What would you ask him, or what would you ask from him? Would it be a sophisticated, maybe a noble theological question? Would it be something a little more base, a little more petty like me? And I'm asking because as far-fetched as that sounds for us to get 10 minutes of face-to-face time with Jesus just walking down the road one day, that's exactly what happened with two of his closest disciples, James and John, in Mark chapter 10. They're making their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and they have some alone time with Jesus. Turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to see what they decide to ask Jesus when they have his undivided attention. What's their question to Jesus? Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us Whatever we ask. Well, what do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten, that's the rest of the disciples, heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. So Jesus calls them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, as we come to your word today, God, I ask that you would move in power. I ask that you would help us understand what it means to be truly great. And God, that you would give us the faith, the courage, the conviction to chase after, follow after your type of greatness. God, would you draw us back to yourself where we've gone away from that already? Would you help us to see that what you have for us in this life and in the life of the world to come is so much better than anything we can get here on our own? Move now, God, by the power of your word and by the power of your spirit. We ask you to do that for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I should say this real quick. If you're in elementary school and you want the sermon notebook, it's out at the Next Steps area, those three tables in the lobby. And if you're in middle school or high school, we got sermon note sheets for you as well. Same spot uh, out in the tables in the lobby. Josh put those out there this morning for you. So uh, next week, grab some on the way in, be able to take notes, and uh, then talk about it later with family or friends or whoever. When we read this story, I think that we can all agree, right? Like James and John, you kind of got to hand it to them. They made the most of their opportunity. I don't know what you decided you would ask Jesus 
in your 10 minutes alone of his undivided attention, but they really made the most of their opportunity. They were bold in their request. And essentially what they're doing there is like the, the Jesus version of getting the magic lamp. The genie comes out and you're like, genie with my first wish, I want unlimited wishes. That's exactly what they're doing. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And before we give them too hard of a time, like condemn them, be harsh with them, like, oh, they're so, they're so selfish. They're just like Ryan. They would just put a wish list before God, right? Like, don't we do that same thing, right? Like, God, I want you to do for me what I already want for myself. Isn't that how a lot of our praying goes? A lot of our requests to God, God, I want you to do for me what I already want for myself. It's like a kid's Christmas list, right? Sometimes when we're praying, it's like the save for later page in your Amazon account. Like maybe not right now, but God, I would love for you to do these things for me. And I know it's not always that unsophisticated, right? We're not literally praying like, God, just give me more money so I can do more fun things that I already want to do. Maybe, maybe you do. I don't know. But it's usually not quite like that's like, God, you know, you're a student. You're like, God, I want to get into this school so that I can have this career. Well, why do you want to get into that school and have that career? Is it so you can leverage those things for your own good or so that you can leverage them to make Jesus known? God, would you give me this promotion in my job? Would you get me to this level of pay or this position within the company? Well, why do you want those things? Is it so you can have influence and leverage that influence to, to show people Jesus? Or is it so that you can, man, accumulate things to yourself and get the good things of life that you've always Wanted. So it's not always just this really, you know, give me more, more, more like you might hear from a kid. But the heart of it oftentimes is the exact same. I read a quote this week that kind of shook me up a little bit. Authors reflecting on this passage. And he asked this question. He said, would we look like shameless gold diggers if our prayer requests were made public? If my prayer requests were made public, if your prayer requests, what you're actually asking God for were made public, what would we look like? I don't think I always sound like a shameless gold digger when I'm praying, but I'm sure I do sometimes. God, would you do this thing? Why? For me. God, would you get this thing? Why? For me. God, would you organize these circumstances in my life? Why? Well, because it's more comfortable. It's more pleasant. I'm going to enjoy it more if my life is this way instead of that way. God, would you do that for me? Will you do for me Whatever I ask, will you give me, God, what I already want for myself? My question from James and John, right? Same question we tend to ask. God, do for me whatever I want. It seems bad enough on its own. But then they ask another question. We see it actually gets worse. Like things go downhill from there. We have to look back, though, to catch the context for what's happening. Because their time with Jesus, James and John, it's not happening in a vacuum. It's not a hypothetical like we're thinking of for ourselves. This is their real life. And this is really happening as they're on the way up to Jerusalem that they get this time where they have Jesus's undivided attention. And what happened just before they got that face-to-face -face time with Jesus helps us understand why their next question is so much worse even than the first one. So listen to this, uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 34. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside, the disciples. He's talking specifically to them, and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man, that's Jesus' uh, name for himself, will be betrayed to the chief priests 
and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. That's what Jesus said just before he had this alone time with James and with John. What's going on here? This is the third of three times that Jesus has predicted to his disciples his own death. The death that is coming for him, he knows what's coming, but they don't understand it. Jesus did this in Mark 8.31. He did it again in Mark 9.31, and he's doing it here in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. Why is he doing this? Why is he saying the same thing to them over and over and over again? Well, Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples Number one, for what's about to happen when they get to Jerusalem so they can make sense of what's happening. And number two, for what's going to happen after that. Because Jesus knows he's not going to be with them like this forever. Jesus knows like the end is coming for him. His life and ministry on this earth is coming to a close. He knows that, but they don't really get it. And they, so they have no context for what comes next when they then pick up the mantle of the gospel and are called to run with it in the power of the Holy Spirit. They're going to celebrate the Passover, but they are not catching the hint that Jesus is God's great Passover lamb who will be sacrificed on behalf of guilty sinners. And the question from James and John just proves, right, how badly they were missing the point. I want you to think about it. It was your time with Jesus, right? You've got your 10 minutes. You've got your questions lined up. You know you've got his attention. Ask him anything. Ask him for anything. Would what you wanted to say to Jesus change at all if Jesus had just said this to you right before that? If Jesus had just said to you, hey, uh, I'm going to be betrayed when we get where we're going. I'm going to be condemned to die. And then I'm going to be tortured. And then I'm going to be murdered. Right? Would what you said back to him after that change? I think for most of us, it probably would, right? I think for most of us, it probably would. It would be less like Christmas, the, the run-up to Christmas, and the conversation would take on a very different tone and tenor. But listen, not for James and John, right? They were not deterred at all in when they had their face-to-face time asking for what they really wanted. Let one of us, look at verse 37, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in glory. And as off-base as they are, I think we do have to give them a little bit of credit. They at least understood that glory was coming for Jesus. They at least got that right. That was true. But they still thought that it was the glory of an earthly political kingdom. And so they basically asked Jesus, Tim Keller points this out in his book on Mark, they basically asked Jesus like, hey, we'd like to be the prime minister and the chief of staff in your new kingdom. Right? That's That's how we see ourselves, Jesus. Like, we're your right hand and your left hand guys, okay? And we want these positions of power in your new kingdom. They imagine Jesus sitting on a physical throne, ruling from Jerusalem over this kingdom. They're on the way up to Jerusalem, and they're like, hey, when we get there, right? And when you, when you like, you know, this upheaval comes, and you're left on top, Jesus, we want to be up there with you, right? We want to be up there with you. We want to be the prime minister and the chief of staff. What they did not understand was that Jesus' glory was not coming through conquest and domination. That Jesus' glory was coming through sacrifice and service. They were expecting conquest and domination. They wanted to be at the top of the food chain when it all went down. They wanted to secure for themselves those positions of power. And again, aren't we just like that? Don't we assume that true greatness means being at the top of whatever it is? 
right? True greatness means being at the top. It means power. It means position. It means prestige. It means success. I mean, true greatness means maintaining those things by any means necessary. That's why we look up to, we admire people who are at the top of their game. That's why Forbes publish, publishes lists every year, the world's richest people. You know, you see names like Elon Musk and Bill Gates. These people are at the top of their game. And we, we read those lists, right? And we see the net worth and the assets and the houses and the yachts and all that. And we go, man, that would be awesome. It would be awesome to be up there to have all that. Man, if you could just enjoy all the good things that life has to offer whenever you want it, wouldn't that be awesome? That's why we admire people like Michael Jordan. You look up a list. Who's the world's greatest athlete? Right? Is it MJ? Is it Bo Jackson? Is it Jim Thorpe? Right? Who's the world's greatest athlete? Okay, how incredible would it be to be on top of your game like that? To be so dominant, to be so victorious over such a long period of time. Wouldn't that be incredible? Right? We love to celebrate the greats among us. I'm not saying we're delusional, you know, not like one of us is going to become the next Bill Gates or the next Michael Jordan. I'm not. I'm not saying we think about greatness like that, but we all want to be great in our own ways, don't we? We all desire to have the good things of life coming our direction, don't we? And we're all willing to to maneuver to make sure that that happens. We desire success and the benefits it brings, right? We want the power to do as we please in our life. We'd love to be in a position where we can call the shots, where we can call the shots for ourselves, where we can be sovereign over our own lives, and we see greatness as the way to achieve that kind of sovereignty over our own lives. James and John are no different. All right, we're just like them. They're just like us. We want to be great because we have this innate sense, right, that the grass would be greener if we could be great in whatever way you desire, whether that's your career, with your family, with your friends, with your hobbies, in the community, right, uh, uh, an influencer, a thought leader, a successful person, whatever it is, right, we think, man, the grass would be greener if I was up there among the greats in this thing, in this way. It's a totally natural way to think. The only problem is it turns out that our ideas about greatness and what Jesus would describe as greatness are two very different things. And so Jesus, he gets to work, right, trying to set the record straight with James and John and the rest of the disciples. And he says to James and John specifically, like, you guys have no clue what you're asking. You say you want these positions of power, these these positions of authority and influence and greatness. He's like, you have no idea what it means to be truly great. But it's not just James and John that we're missing the point. And that becomes clear when you keep reading in verse 41. When the 10 heard about this, the rest of the disciples, they became indignant with James and John. Now, there's a way to be indignant about the sinfulness and the selfishness of what James and John are saying, right? And that's what maybe we would think that they would be indignant about. Like, how dare you assume that you're going to be right up there with Jesus? Like, man, he is high and lifted up all on his own. He's sovereign over. He's the king. That's not why they're upset. The way the scripture reads, it's like they're upset that they got beat to the punch. They're upset that they didn't think of this first. They're upset that James and John are cutting them out rather than them having the opportunity to cut James and John out, to to preserve those positions for themselves. They're not upset at their request. They're upset they didn't make the request first. 
So it's not just James and John who need to understand the meaning of true greatness. It's not just the disciples. It's really all of us. And so this Jesus graciously speaks, and this is what he says to us. Jesus called to them, verse 42. Called to them, he called them together, and he said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's really interesting here, and you may have noticed it as we read, is that Jesus does not condemn or rebuke or correct their desire for greatness. Right? Jesus doesn't come in and say, shame on you for wanting to be great, for wanting to make an impact in the world. He doesn't do that at all. Jason Meyer points this out in his commentary. He said, the disciples' whole argument about who will be the greatest is rife with worldly thinking. Now, worldly rulers all have something in common. They're elevated above others. Rulers lord it over others. Their position is higher. So they make that known. And that's how the disciples are thinking. How can I rise above the rest and have power and influence over them? Jesus does not tell them, stop wanting to be great. He does not rebuke the quest for greatness. He redefines the quest by redefining greatness itself. So disciples don't come to Jesus and he says, hey, you shouldn't desire greatness. He says, actually, you should desire it. It's just something different entirely. You're not thinking about greatness the way that I think about greatness is what Jesus says to them in that moment. Greatness in the kingdom of God doesn't work like greatness in the kingdoms of the world with which you and I are familiar at work or at home or in the government or in the culture. Greatness works differently in God's kingdom. In the kingdom of God, right, might doesn't make right. In the kingdom of God, more isn't always better. In the kingdom of God, looking out for yourself first is not a sure ride to the top. It's the quickest way to the very bottom. Now listen, Jesus wanted his disciples to be great. He wanted them to have an impact in the world. He knew he was not going to be there forever. He knew the Holy Spirit was coming to them. And he wanted them to turn the world upside down as they preached and proclaimed the good news about him. He wanted that for them. He wants that for us as well, but not great in the way of the world. Not great in the way the world thinks about greatness. Great in his own way. And that's why he said, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. Now, as you hear that, man, let's just be honest for a minute, right? I think most days I would much rather be great in the way of the world than great in the way of the kingdom. I think I would much rather be great in the way of the world than I would rather be great in the way of the kingdom. Greatness in the way of the world honestly sounds awesome. And when I read those lists of the world's richest people or the world's greatest athlete, all right, my heart is drawn to that just like yours probably is. And I would love to have a yacht that I could live on with a helicopter. That would be so cool, right? And like a full-time staff of people that you just pay to live on your yacht and take care of you. Man, being great in the way of the world, I'm not, not just the top, the top richest person like Elon Musk, but like, and I would love to be able to orchestrate things so that they just kind of always go my way. I would love to be able to, to, to maneuver and manipulate the details and circumstances of my life so that it's always better for me in the end. 
so that my life is more comfortable, so that it's easier, so that it's more pleasant. Compare and contrast that with greatness in the way of God's kingdom. Serving others, excuse me, slave to all. That sounds exhausting. That sounds really, really difficult. That sounds like doing that day after day, month after month, year after year, man, would just be hard. And I would guess I'm not the only one who maybe thinks like that. Greatness in the way of the world, it sounds like the path to the good life, doesn't it? It sounds like the path to the pleasant life. It sounds like the path to the life that maybe you've always dreamed of. And the way to achieve that kind of greatness also seems pretty clear. Right? All you have to do is focus on yourself first. That's all you have to do. All you have to do is put yourself first. That's what the culture screams at us all the time anyways with expressive individualism. Look out for yourself. Pursue your dreams. Chase after that. Man, climb the ladder. Manifest your dreams until they become reality. And then you can just sit back. You can just sit back and relax and let all the good things roll up to you. Enjoy all the goodness that life has to offer. I'm reminded, though, something C.S. Lewis said as a warning about pursuing this kind of life. He said it in Mere Christianity. He said, if you look out for yourself, sorry, he said, look out for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. Can you pursue greatness the way the world defines it? Of course you can. And many of us do without even realizing it, right? Our hearts are drawn towards that kind of greatness where things go better for us in the end. We, we would love to live a life like that where things always went better for us in the end. Can you chase after that with everything? Absolutely. But will you be fulfilled? Will you be satisfied in the end, even if you get what you always wanted? Probably not. Right, probably not, because a greatness that lords, it's, that lords it over others, a greatness that steps over others to achieve greatness, a greatness that pushes others to the side in pursuit of what you've always wanted, in pursuit of the good life, a greatness like that necessarily isolates you from others. It puts you on a path to the top where no one else can come with you because they might get in your way. And so in the end, it leads to hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. Is that really what we want for ourselves? Is that what the disciples wanted for themselves? Probably not. But just like us, right, it's so easy to see what we perceive to be the benefits of that type of greatness without looking at the costs. Could you get there one day? Maybe. But would you be there by yourself? Probably. And is that really what you want? Enjoying the good things of life all by yourself? Constantly having the things and the experiences and the stuff that you want with no one to share it with? Separated maybe even from your closest family and friends who used to be with you when you were just a mere mortal before you had achieved that greatness? Is that what we want? Probably not. That's why Jesus is so gracious to steer us away 
from that wrong and false vision of greatness and back towards a kingdom vision for greatness. And he does that, listen, by pointing us to himself. Jesus teaches us what it means to be truly great by pointing us back to himself. True greatness in the kingdom of God, right? It's not about being served. It's about serving. Because Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve. True greatness in the kingdom of God isn't making it so that other people have to sacrifice for your good. It's about sacrificing for their good. Because Jesus said, hey, I'm here to sacrifice even my very life on behalf of others. Jesus desired that kind of greatness, true kingdom greatness of his disciples back then. Listen, he desires it for his followers today as well. And here's the reason why. It's because in God's upside-down kingdom, true greatness is found in sacrifice and service. In God's upside-down kingdom, a kingdom that doesn't make sense when we compare it to all the other ways of the world, in God's upside-down kingdom, True greatness is found in sacrifice and service. For even the Son of Man, even the Son of Man, even God Himself, when He was made flesh and He lived among us, the one person who could have rightly demanded that everyone serve Him, who could have demanded any sacrifice from us, He says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give my life, to sacrifice myself as a ransom for many sacrifice. And service. This is the way of Jesus, and it is the way of greatness for all of his followers. The disciples, though, they could not understand what Jesus was saying because they hadn't seen it yet. They hadn't seen it yet, right? Their only vision for greatness was what they saw in the world around them, what they saw in Jerusalem and what they saw in Rome. That was how they understood greatness, conquest and domination. And so they were expecting, they were assuming that that was going to be Jesus's path to greatness as well. But you and I have a very different vantage point than his first disciples. You and I look at things from a different point of view. We're not looking ahead, trying to imagine how Jesus would come into his greatness. We're looking back. And we can see it all very clearly now. We know that what Jesus said in verses 33 and 34 was fulfilled in just a matter of days after he said it. We know that Jesus did not ascend to the political throne of an earthly kingdom by stepping over or stepping on or crushing his enemies. We know, looking back, we can see it clearly. Jesus ascended to the divine throne of an eternal kingdom by descending. By descending to the grave put there by his enemies. And no doubt, in that moment, his enemies, they thought, man, we got the best of Jesus. We got the best of Jesus, didn't we? We exposed his weakness for what it is, and we are showing now our true greatness. But you and I know the truth. We can see it clearly. We know that Jerusalem was, it fell to Rome in 70 AD. We know that Rome fell to the barbarians in the 5th century. And we know that the church that Jesus started with his death and his resurrection stands to this day. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why is that? It's because true greatness endures. It echoes throughout throughout generations. Why does kingdom greatness last when all the others fade and fail? It's because greatness rooted in self-preservation and self-promotion lasts only as long as the self. And so if I'm great in that way, if you are great in that way, my greatness dies with me and your greatness dies with you. If it was only ever about you, it dies with you. 
But greatness in the way of Jesus lasts because it is not fundamentally self-centered. It is fundamentally others-centered. It seeks not just the good of the self, but the good of others too. And that legacy lives on in them. In the people that you sacrificed for, in the people that you served, your greatness lives on in them even after you have died. In the same way that Jesus' greatness lives on in the church, in us who make up the church. We have been served by him. We have been sacrificed for by him. And so his greatness is put on display in our lives now, even though he's not here. The question for us then is simple, right? Is Jesus' vision for greatness also my vision for greatness? Is his vision for greatness also my vision for greatness? Or have I settled for some other vision of greatness that I am pursuing with my life, with my work, with my family, with my hobbies? As Will and I were talking about this week, one of the things that that really resonated with both of us was just how easy it is to be drawn into a different vision for greatness, a different idea about what it means to be great, a different idea about what it means to live the good life, how easy that is to be drawn away, and then how hard it is to realize that's what's actually happened to me. I'm actually not living for a kingdom vision of greatness. I'm not pursuing greatness in the way of Jesus, how hard it is to see when that's the case. It's like, man, who wouldn't want the good things of life to come to them, right? And who, if they had the opportunity, wouldn't manipulate and move and bend things so that the good things came to them first? Again, it's a totally normal and natural way of thinking and living. That's why it's so easy to be drawn into this vision of greatness that puts the self first before others. So I want us to consider some questions this morning. Just to evaluate, right? Like, is Jesus' vision for greatness, is it mine also? Or have I settled somewhere else? Question number one is this. What am I asking God for in prayer? What am I asking God for in prayer? To serve or to be served? Right? Am I asking God for, for good things to come to me and that's it? God, do this for me. God, bless me in this way. Or am I asking God, would you make me a blessing? God, would you put people in my life that I can go out of my way to serve? Or am I just looking around at people and circumstances and work and whatever and going, God, let all the good stuff come to me. Would my life be easier? Would my life be more pleasant? Would my life be better off, God, because you're doing something for me? God, give me what I've always wanted. Is that what our prayers sound like? What am I asking God for? Question number two, am I sacrificing and serving? Is that actually happening in my life? Am I sacrificing and serving or do I see some things as being me, beneath my dignity. God, I'm up here and maybe doing that project or helping in that way or cleaning up that mess or dealing with that situation at work. That's just below me because I'm up here now, right? I, I get paid too much. I work too hard. I'm too old or I'm too young, right, to, to mess with that. And so that's below me. Am I actually sacrificing anything? Am I serving others. And then the third question would just be like, who? Who am I sacrificing for? Who am I serving? Or do I see some people as below me too? They've got too many problems. That's too exhausting. I can't mess with that. Got to set up boundaries because I'm here and they're there and I don't have the time. I don't have the resources. I don't have whatever. And probably the easiest way to see if you have a different vision for greatness than Jesus is to ask it like that. Are there 
people or things that I see as being beneath me. And if I do, man, it's just exposing something in our hearts, in my heart this morning, in your heart this morning, that what you think of as true greatness and what Jesus thinks of are two different things. So where do we go from there, if that's the case? If you're answering these questions, you're going, ooh, man, something is off. Something's off in my heart, God. I'm not seeing sacrifice in my life. I'm not seeing service in my life, right? I'm not seeing a pursuit of others for their good. I'm seeing a pursuit of my good and what I want. My prayers sound like that. God, give me what I already want. What do we do next? The answer, and it's always the same. It's confession and it's repentance and it's looking back to Jesus to see what he's already done. And that makes it so easy for us, right? I don't have to pull myself up by the bootstraps. I don't have to figure out a new plan for my life. I don't don't have to do any of that. I just have to confess it. God, would you please forgive me for organizing my life so that I'm at the center, for promoting myself at the expense of others, for doing what's right for me no matter how it impacts others. God, would you forgive me for that? I confess that sin to you. I'm not seeking Jesus. I'm not seeking greatness in the way that Jesus talks about it. I'm seeking greatness for me. Would you please forgive me? Confession is the first place to start. And then repentance. God, would you set me on a different path? Right? I've been going down this path for me, and now I want to go down a different and a better path, one where I'm following Jesus. That's repentance. And when we walk down that path, listen, Calvary West, you are not walking alone. You are not the first person to walk that path. First of all, we're following Jesus. And so we look and we go, man, what did Jesus do for me? How has he sacrificed for me? How has he served me? How has he done what was best for me at his own expense? And so we follow after him in that. The key to that really is verse 45, the very end of it. Look at that with me. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and this is it, and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is a price. It's a cost. Right? And what Jesus is saying about himself is that I have bought you back with my own life. And so now you can be free from the slavery to this false vision of greatness. And you know, you know, if you've pursued it, that it really is a form of slavery. It promises everything but it doesn't deliver. Instead, it takes everything. You may have the stuff. You may accumulate the wealth. But in the end, you have nothing that lasts. Everything truly good has been taken from you. And Jesus says, hey, I have bought you back from that lie so that you can live in the truth and you can pursue greatness as it really is. If I've been bought in that way, that's now the most important thing about me. Right, It frees me from that false vision of greatness and it also just helps me see how unsatisfying it is in the end. I can set that aside now. My accomplishments, my accumulation, my stuff, my degrees, whatever, that's no longer the most important thing about me. Now the most important thing about me is who I am in Christ. And so I can put him on display. I can put his greatness on display. I can point people over and over and over again to him and not myself. I can do what's best for others and not me because Jesus did what was best for me in the first place. If Jesus has purchased you back, if he has ransomed your life, man, you've been made free to pursue greatness 
in the way of Jesus, greatness in the way of his kingdom, greatness in the way that lasts forever. Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Now podcast. We desire that Calvary would be a place of belonging and hope where no one walks alone. If you're not already, we would love for you to join us in person at either of our campuses on Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. For more information, visit us at calvarynow.com.